Matthew 21. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. And I'll pray as we begin. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. I thank you for these people who've come uh, and for the specific purpose that you've brought us together today. We thank you that these moments, as ordinary as they seem and, and feel, there is something sacred and, and, and holy about this particular moment, God. And we invite you by your Holy Spirit, sanctify this moment to us, that we would see it rightly, that we, in the hearing of your word, would be changed, that we would recognize how profound it is that you are a God who chooses to make himself known. You don't dwell in obscurity. You choose to make yourself known in Jesus, to put flesh on your character, on your nature, on who you are. By sending Jesus to us, God, you have made known perfectly who you are, and, and we're grateful for that. And it's just as profound, Lord, that you would, would choose by your spirit to speak continually through your word, through a passage that we've heard probably more than a few times. But we invite you to speak once more. In Jesus' name, amen. If you guys want to stand, we can read together. Um, Beginning in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt buyer. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. You know, it's kind of appropriate that Alex has the, uh, the kids jamming back there worshiping this morning. Because it's like, that's, that's the, the nature of what's happening in this moment. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and there's all this shouting. There's all of this, this singing, and, and there's this worship at the center of it. So it, it's really so fitting. Um, but there's this, this phrase that sticks with me. The Lord needs. The Lord needs. Is what Jesus says to his disciples. The Lord needs. Like, that just strikes me um, in what is definitely the weirdest part of, of this passage. Jesus says to his disciples, 
I want you to go and find a donkey for me. And it sounds a lot like Jesus is saying, I want you to go steal a donkey for me. Obviously, we're just borrowing it, but everybody's going to see that as stealing. You can't just borrow somebody's car for a minute, right? We, we all recognize that. Like, it seems a little bit like that. And the other thing that's strange about it is Jesus hasn't needed a donkey for the last 98 miles he's been walking, okay? He came all the way from Caesarea Philippi, right? That's not even in the territory of Israel. That's further north than even Galilee, right? He's come all the way here to Jerusalem, right? 98 miles he's been traveling. And in the last two miles, he gets to Bethphage and decides now he needs a donkey. It's strange to us as well, obviously, because it seems a little silly that Jesus is is riding into Jerusalem on not just a donkey. Matthew says specifically on the foal of a donkey, on like a a colt, a young, untrained, unbroken animal. Nobody has likely ever ridden this donkey Jesus is going to get on, right? And if you know anything about this, maybe you've seen this firsthand, maybe you've just seen it on television or something, but the first time somebody gets on a horse or a donkey or a mule, It's not the most coordinated kind of experience, right? It's a very awkward sort of experience. And you can just imagine this grown man on a very small donkey riding into Jerusalem. And the donkey is just bobbing and weaving everywhere it goes because he doesn't know what he's doing. It's not like the slickest ride into Jerusalem Jesus could have chosen. But that's what he's chosen. And for Jerusalem, this had to have been a little little jarring. Um, Jerusalem had seen great kings come into their city. Alexander the Great had famously ridden in. Great generals like Pompey had ridden in after conquering the city. They always came in on impressive horses. Jesus doesn't. Weird choice, you know. But what's even more strange to me than all of that is this phrase, this provocative way that Jesus states things to his disciples and that he's telling him to say things to this person who might raise an objection What are you doing with my donkey? The Lord needs them. Because here's the thing. Maybe you know, but I have racked my brain trying to think of any time in Scripture where it's stated that God needs anything. The idea that God needs is, is not there. Now, the flip side of that, I think we know numerous passages that tell us God doesn't need He has no need ever, right? We all think of of Psalm 50. God says to his people who are constantly bringing sacrifices and thinking they're doing something special for him. He says, I have no need of bulls. Mine are the cattle on a thousand hills. God doesn't need anything, right? Yet Jesus says, the Lord needs this donkey, it's, it's, it's strange. God is doing something interesting here. It's a very provocative way for Jesus to state his case. It's a very provocative way for Jesus to come into Jerusalem. Jesus comes into Jerusalem in this very quiet, subtle, subversive way, almost that no one would have noticed otherwise. But Jesus is doing something very provocative by referring to himself when he gives these instructions, right? Right? He says, I need you to go get a donkey for for me, right? And then you're going to tell them the Lord needs it. Jesus is referring back to himself when he says all of this, it seems. In essence, Matthew is trying to tell us Jesus is Lord. This is who Jesus is. 
If you didn't know it already, Jesus is Lord. And right, we all know those words brought down a whole empire. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. We just heard it from the man himself. Jesus himself is, is hinting provocatively at this idea that he is the Lord. And obviously, this could mean a couple of different things. The word in Greek, kurios, could mean a master, like a master and slave sort of relationship. It could mean God, or it could mean Jesus referring to himself as God. Regardless, it doesn't seem to refer to this slave-master relationship. So it's either God he's talking about who needs it so that he can fulfill this prophecy, or Jesus who needs it. And again, both are provocative. God doesn't need Yet Jesus confronts us with something different, right? The same kind of thing happens. If you look back in your Bibles, you can check it out. Just a few verses earlier, Matthew 20, there's this really beautiful story. There are two blind men. They know Jesus is coming by. And when they realize that Jesus is coming by, they've heard amazing things about Jesus. And they begin to cry out after Jesus. And their words are, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And all the people that are around, this crowd of people that are with Jesus and the crowd of people that are around the blind men are very uncomfortable with this. You don't cry out, Lord, at a man like Jesus. That, that's kind of blasphemy. You don't do that sort of thing. But what's even more provocative, like they're trying to hush down the blind men. Don't say that. You can't say that. Calm down. They've lost their minds. Everybody's got to get them to calm down but what's even more provocative is that Jesus says effectively, present, here I am, what do you need? How may I help you? Jesus answers to their call, Lord, Son of David, right? Matthew wants you to know that. Jesus wants them to know this. Everybody's so scandalized. Jesus is Lord. That would be controversial. That would be crazy enough for Jesus to be saying. But now he's saying the Lord needs. And why I think this is important is that Jesus is God. We have to come to grips with that. That's what he's claiming. But he's also a human capable of need. This is what we, we preach. This is what the creed teaches us. This is what scripture is trying to convince us of, that Jesus is both fully God and yet fully human, right? He is God, but he's also a human capable of need. He's a man, an ordinary carpenter from Nazareth, but how can that be if he is also God? If he's a king, as they call him, the son of David, the long-awaited son of David, how can a king possibly need like everything about this passage seems to co contradict itself. Everything about the passage seems sort of irreconcilable, I think, in our minds, right? The king is here, and he's on a donkey. Interesting, okay? The Lord is among us, but apparently he is capable of, of need. And this is just the start, right? It's like Jesus is trying to prepare us for something, for what's coming, right? Soon they will find themselves wrestling with another a contradiction, right? Within a week's time, they will find themselves wrestling with another seemingly irreconcilable reality. The Messiah, crucified. God, but dead. How? 
None of this makes any sense. And that's who Jesus is. One seeming contradiction after another. He's God, but not like you expected. He's God on a donkey. He's fully divine and fully human. John says it well when he says that Jesus came full of grace, but also truth. He's not just gracious, he speaks the truth. And in the week ahead, what Jesus is making clear as he enters into Jerusalem is that he's going to both comfort Jerusalem and confront Jerusalem. Jesus comes to confront us. Not just comfort us, comfort us and confront us. And here's the thing. Matthew knows all of this. Probably sounds a little weird. All of this doesn't look great, right? It seems a little crazy, especially if you don't know what's going on. People like us who aren't culturally familiar, religiously familiar, who don't know the prophets very well, we don't think much of Jesus. We see Jesus riding in on a donkey and we think he looks a little bit like a fool. But Matthew gives us the scoop, right? He wants you to understand the Old Testament understanding of all of this. So he starts quoting from Zechariah. It's actually Zechariah chapter 9. See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, right? But here's the thing to keep in mind. For them, this is not just a religious text. It's not just a religious reference. This is a, a cultural centerpiece. It's almost like a, a pop culture reference at some level too. This is who they are. This is a story that is in them at a different level than just their faith or religion. It's words they all know so well. Even people who aren't really practicing Jewish people, if they live in Israel, they, they are familiar with this imagery. It would be like Matthew or some preacher saying, you know, Adrian, everybody knows what he's talking about. Everybody knows that reference. I don't care. You may never have seen Rocky, but you know that reference, right? Or it's like somebody starts playing that, that, that song from the, the first scene of The Lion King. You don't know any of the words, but you know it. And you start humming it a little bit. You start singing it. You start singing your own version, right? Because you know it. You're familiar with it. These people, this crowd, they all know what Jesus is doing. Matthew is, is quoting this to a group of people who, who know it pretty well. They're like, oh, yeah, Zechariah, we know Zechariah well. But there's a story even further behind what Zechariah is saying, an image that is just left etched into their collective memory. It's one of the lowest points in David's life. You guys know King David well. You're familiar. And if you know David's life well, you know it's a lot to say this is one of the lowest points in his life because David has a lot of low points in his life. But one of the lowest points of David's life is, is when his own son, Absalom, rebels against him, leads a coup against him, usurps the throne, takes the throne for himself, and in the most bold kind of way. And David is forced to flee Jerusalem for his own safety. His son wants his head. And as David is fleeing Jerusalem, the story is that a servant, a man named Ziba, is waiting for him as he's crossing over the Mount of Olives with donkeys. He has packed these donkeys with all the supplies that the king and his party will need. 
He wants the king to have a ride. He's a king, right? He's more dignified than walking. He shouldn't be walking. And so Ziba provides these donkeys. That memory, David riding on a donkey, escaping Jerusalem for his life. It's etched into their memories. And all of these people, they know the rest of the story, that eventually David comes back, but that's only after his son Absalom is dead and the kingdom has been restored to him. And this picture is in their minds. King David returning to Jerusalem on a donkey. It doesn't seem very royal, but it means something to them. It's like Zechariah was saying to them, when he used that image, the king is coming back. He's saying to a group of people who haven't known a king in a long time, the king is coming back. Just like David came back, the king will return. Matthew is saying in the same kind of way, I know it feels like the king has been gone a long time. I know you've lived under oppressive and evil kings, but the heir to the throne is coming. The king is here, Matthew says. And he's gentle. They haven't known many gentle kings either. It's not what they expect. It's hard to reconcile. But the people who were there, they, they knew what was happening. That's why they begin to cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. They'd been waiting on the Messiah King. They'd been waiting on the, the son of David for so long. And when these pilgrims who had been traveling, many of them from the same place that Jesus was traveling from, some of them had come along somewhere along the way. Maybe they hadn't traveled quite as far, but... They had been traveling along the same road, the same route that Jesus was. They had heard of the amazing things that he had been doing. They'd seen some of these things in many cases. And when they saw him, this person they had already been kind of like questioning and, and wondering about, when they saw him get on a donkey, make this very intentional move, this very provocative move, he sends for a donkey for the last two miles so that he can ride into Jerusalem this way. They knew what was happening. There was no mistaking it. This was the comfort they had been waiting for. This is the gentle and lowly, humble king, Jesus of Nazareth. That's who Jesus is, they're realizing. And it all sounds familiar, right? If you know the rest of Matthew, you know Matthew 11. Jesus makes this statement, take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest. Your souls, he says, will find rest. Jesus is, is making clear when he gets on this donkey. God's promise to his people is fulfilled in him. A carpenter from the little town of Nazareth in Galilee that very few people really know much about. There's rest for the people of God now. There's comfort in all of their grief and lost, loss and, and, and suffering and pain. This is what's happening in Jesus. But keep that in mind. Jesus is the king returning to the, the kingdom to restore Israel, right? Jesus is coming to, to comfort his people, to deliver his people. But Matthew identifies two different crowds, right? I think sometimes we forget about that. We, we, we think about there's this one big crowd, and they're all crying out, Hosanna. 
But Matthew tells us about two different groups of people. They're the crowds who are where Jesus is, outside of Jerusalem, in the, like what we would call the suburbs, really. Bethphage, Bethany, these are places where Jesus spent a lot of time. He had good friends in these places. But then there are the people who were in the city itself. Like inside the gates of the city of Jerusalem, there's this different crowd of people. And it's easy for us to think of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem as like a triumph. This is an incredible thing. The crowds are, are overwhelmed at what they're seeing. Everyone is on the same page, right? Everybody is just moved by the entrance of Jesus into the city. But there's this other group of people. Yeah, it's a triumphal entry among the pilgrims, among Jesus' disciples, among those who've been following along this same route that Jesus has been walking on. Those people are convinced. Those people are worshiping. Those people are hopeful. This is what they've been waiting for, but there's another crowd. Matthew says, it's in verse 10, when Jesus entered the city, all of Jerusalem was stirred, and they asked, who is this? Who is this? So like the, the palm branches and the cloaks thrown along the ground, like a, a red carpet for the king, that's all outside of Jerusalem. That's all starting out there. The crowds in Jerusalem aren't as sure what to do with Jesus, though. The cries of Hosanna, all of this, that's, that's outside the city. But inside the city, Jesus isn't getting the same reception. Most of those people don't even know who Jesus is. Maybe they've heard some of the things that have been going on. Galilee is a far walk from Jerusalem. Most of them have never been there. It makes me think of, of this place, our friend Ben and uh, and his wife, Rachel Stanton, lived in, in Bolgatanga for, for years in the north of Ghana. I remember going there in 2017. And I had some old friends in the capital city of Accra. And I remember being on the phone with them. And they said, you're going where? Bol like that Bolgatanga? Like, I live in Ghana. I've never been there. We don't go there. Galilee is the same way. Nazareth would have been the same kind of way. They don't know who Jesus is but they know something unprecedented is happening. They know something unreal is happening. Matthew says, they're stirred. That's what our, our translation says. And I started thinking like, what does that even mean? Like when I say the people were stirred, right? For some of us, that has like a positive connotation. Uh, it's like they were stirred. They're, like they're, their spirits were warmed somehow by Jesus' presence, and other times, like, stirred means like this negative thing. You're stirring trouble, right? It's like, I, I, I don't know what this means. What exactly does it mean? Matthew's using a very specific word, though, in Greek. And I know what just happened, right? Stay with me. I know there's this, this thing that we all do. We kind of, like, look at our phones in moments like this to find something more interesting than whatever's about to come out of my mouth because I just said the word Greek. And you're like, great, here it comes. Here it is. But I promise this is actually helpful. This is actually cool. The Greek word is esaista. Esaiste. You know this word. Size. As in seismic. As in seismology. As in earthquakes. The word literally means shaking. Quaking. That's the idea that's being communicated. 
Matthew says the whole city is shaken. Not literally shaking. Not like the ground is actually shaking when Jesus comes in, but the people themselves, the crowds, are shaken somehow by his presence. That's cool enough. When Jesus of Nazareth enters into Jerusalem, the city is shaken by his presence. But more than that, Matthew doesn't really use this word very often. He uses it three times in 28 chapters. He uses this word three times. In chapter 27, you're very familiar with this scene, Jesus being crucified. When he breathes his last breath, Matthew says that the ground, the earth itself, shook at that moment. Chapter 28, similar scene. You, you know it well. An angel comes and rolls back the stone of Jesus' tomb, and these Roman guards are so overwhelmed with fear, Matthew says, they were shaking. The other time is in chapter 21, when Jesus comes walking into Jerusalem, and it's like Matthew's trying to tell you, this is a moment of that kind of magnitude. When Jesus walked into Jerusalem, something was happening. I know he's just on a donkey, and I know that seems weird, and I know that he seems foolish, and I know that that seems really humble and lowly. And it is, but, but it isn't just that. This is a moment of that kind of magnitude. Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, and this, Matthew wants you to see, is Jesus' coronation. This is important. Don't miss this moment. As, as subtle and subversive as Jesus is being, Jerusalem is shaken. But why? They don't even know who this dude is. How can you be shaken by somebody you don't know or understand or have any sort of relation to? Here's why. They've lived in Jerusalem long enough to know that Rome will not allow Jerusalem to have a king. There is no Jewish king over Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, is not a place that any king has authority over. You, you know Herod. You're familiar with Herod. Maybe you're f familiar with Philip. These are other kings that are put in positions of power. They're like Jewish nobility. But not over Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, there's just Pilate. You know Pilate. Pilate is the governor that Caesar has put in that position. He's handpicked Pilate to be the governor over the city of Jerusalem because Jerusalem is a particularly troublesome place for Rome. So there is no Jewish king in Jerusalem. And yet, these people are saying, this crowd of people, uncontrollably, unashamedly, shamedly, excuse me, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Save us, O King. Those words are trouble. There are a lot of people who have claimed to be Messiah. A lot of people, just like Jesus, have claimed to be the King who could fix everything for them. And they had all fallen short, and it always spelled trouble with Rome. Everybody in Jerusalem knows it. And normally, Jesus is a little bit more cautious than this, right? There are other times in Jesus' life where people are like, this guy's amazing. We've got to make him king. We need to anoint this man as, as the king that God has sent to us. And Jesus always slips away. He won't allow it to happen. He refuses it. There are other times where people will recognize, even like demons that were told, 
will say that Jesus is the Son of God. People will look at him and they'll realize he's the Son of God. And Jesus will tell them, quiet. Don't tell anybody. Be careful with what you do with that news. He's normally a bit more cautious about it. Now he's being provocative. Now he's being dangerous, it seems. Now he's the one who's made all the arrangements. He says, hey, this isn't the disciples' idea. He says to his disciples, hey, go and get a donkey. And I'm sure they're confused, but he explains to them, here are the arrangements. This is what you're going to say. He lets the crowd call him king. So it's not just the crowd doing something crazy. Jesus is answering once again. Jesus is agreeing to all of this. That's scandalous, man. You don't say that sort of stuff. But you, you might miss it. Jonathan and I were talking about that in the office this week. You might otherwise miss it. You can essentially just preach the humility of Jesus. And I think that's good. That's great. But Jesus is doing more than writing in humble and gentle. Jesus is doing something very subversive. He is on a donkey. He's not on a war horse. He's a poor man from Galilee. He looks nothing like a king, but beneath the surface, Matthew's telling you, there is this seismic shift taking place. There is this grinding, shearing kind of collision between what we think a king should be and who Jesus actually is. There is this collision between what we thought we knew about God and who God actually is. There's this shift, and Jerusalem is shaken. And Jesus is the one forcing the matter. The, the disciples would have been happy for Jesus to come into Jerusalem like everybody else. Nobody notices him there, and Jesus is normally the kind of person who does that. He just kind of slips in unnoticed, not this time. Jesus is forcing the matter. I love the way uh, Tim Keller said it. This is in a sermon from like the 90s. It's so old. Uh, but years ago, I, I heard it, and I think it's really helpful. He says, when Jesus comes in to Jerusalem, it's like Jesus is saying, either crown me or kill me. Because he knows the cost of these words. These people are, are, are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. He realizes what this means. That's insurrection, to claim you are king, to answer to that. That's a dangerous decision. And he's saying, yeah. Either crown me or kill me. He's at that point. There is no in-between. No matter how much we would, would rather that be the case. He's either your king or he's nothing. Jesus says it earlier in Matthew as well. A man can't serve two masters. We cannot serve two masters. He says you'll hate the one and you'll love the other. You cannot do it. You cannot serve both God and money. It can't work. It will never work. And it's like Jesus is saying in this moment, you cannot serve two kings. He is either the son of David, he's either the long-awaited king, the savior, or he is dead to you. And that's what Jerusalem is going to realize. They're going to have to choose, and they make their choice. He's either king or he's nothing. Crown me or kill me. And there, there are so many different kind of hats Jesus wears in our lives. You know, I, I was thinking about this. Like for many of us, Jesus is, is the guru. And we come to Jesus so that Jesus can make us better. 
right? So we can find peace uh, so that we can just be better people in general, kind of like the Pharisees. At some level, we recognize we need to be better. We recognize there's all this brokenness in us, and it needs to be fixed. It needs to be healed. It needs to be made better. And Jesus is like the guru who can make us better. And we sit around him and we let him teach us. Jesus gives us a new ethic, a new way of life. He's an example for us that we can follow. He teaches us a whole new way of living. It's good. That's fine. Other times, he's um, Jesus, our, our therapeutic sort of counseling figure. Like, he, he's here to make us feel better. Um, and he's a person we can go to and, and share these things. Is that all true? Sure. Like, we generally tend to put Jesus in the chair, and we're on the couch, and this is the way our lives function. Like, we're telling our problems to Jesus, and Jesus can, can help us understand our problems. He can make us feel better about our problems. So he can make me a better version of myself. He can help me improve myself. I can feel better about myself. I can be more righteous, more holy. He can make me feel better about the things I'm going through. He can help me understand the things I'm going through. All of these things, right? He wears a lot of different hats. Sometimes Jesus just feels like a healthy life choice, if we're being honest. When we think about what we once were, the things we used to do, the things that used to define us, we recognize how reckless all of that is, and Jesus has given us a better way, and we see Jesus like this. He wears a lot of hats. And in this moment, he's asking to wear the crown. Like, that's more problematic. Jesus isn't just making suggestions to you. Jesus isn't just like somebody who's helping you along. Jesus is your king or he's nothing. And that is a hard thing to come to grips with because it's so much easier if Jesus just serves this particular purpose. I give him authority in matters in my life that, that I deem worthy. And there are these other things that I can manage myself, these other lifestyle choices, these other faith decisions. That, yeah, I, I can manage that. And Jesus is, is saying very provocatively, I am your king or I am nothing. The gentle Jesus, the comforting Jesus is confronting Jerusalem, confronting us. He's claiming to be God in human flesh, a king who's come to liberate his people from sin and death, right? And it's hard for Jerusalem to swallow. And if we're being honest, it's hard for us to swallow sometimes, right? Because Jesus confronts all of these things in us. Jesus confronts everything we thought we knew, especially about God. And the beautiful thing we find is that Jesus, as he comes, not just com comforting us, but confronting us, as he confronts these things, we find that the God he reveals is far better than what we had in mind. God is better than we thought. He's gentle. He's humble. He's self-giving, self-sacrificial. But God is, is gentle, and he is, he is so loving that he's here to confront the worst parts of who we are. Not just sin and death in some sort of abstract sense, sin and death in this world. No, specifically, not just that, but sin and death at work in me. He's here to confront me, 
not just to do battle with the enemy, but with all of that within myself. And he does it in the most surprising way. Today, it's God on a donkey, right? On Friday, it's God on a cross. Saturday, it's God in a tomb. And none of that makes sense. God does not belong on a donkey. Everything we thought we knew about God says God doesn't belong on a donkey. Everything we thought we knew about God tells us God does not belong on a cross, right? And he most certainly doesn't belong in a tomb. But God is better than we thought. God is doing something unique in Jesus. God is delivering us in a way that only he could. We imagined it would look differently, and all of Jerusalem imagined it would look differently. This is the way he's choosing. A donkey, a cross, a tomb. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, Paul says. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As the band comes, that's what we're inviting you to. um, To come and and encounter the, the living Jesus. The Jesus who chooses to enter into Jerusalem on a donkey. Um, the Jesus who, who chooses to, to enter into a tomb. Whose body is broken, whose blood is poured out not just to overcome sin and death in some general abstract sense, but to redeem me specifically, to deal with my darkness, with my brokenness, and to overcome it. When we come to the table, we're coming to our king. This is what you're invited to. We, we invite you in these moments. Come and, and tear off a, a piece of bread. Come and, and take a cup uh, and just hold on to the elements. You can move back to your seat. Uh, and then when they finish this song, we'll all come back together and do this. Father, we ask in these moments uh, that you would draw us near to you, that we would see you rightly. As the God who comes to us humble and, and gentle and lowly, but there is no denying, Lord. You, you are undeniably our King. And may we see you as such. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.